If we take a step back for just a minute, a step back from this epic tale, and we look at Jonah, the person of Jonah, from what I would just call a macro perspective, an interesting irony emerges. Jonah, Jonah, as we've seen, was a deeply religious man living in outright rebellion against God. Like, remember from the things we've, we've examined already, Jonah was theologically sound. As a good Hebrew, Jonah knew the scriptures. He committed the entirety of the, of the Torah, the first five books of your Bible. He committed all of that to memory. Beyond this, Jonah. Jonah was devoted. As a young Gentile who would encounter the living God through the ministry of Elijah the prophet, Jonah made a decision. He wasn't born into the family, so to speak. He chose to be part of the family. As a young man, he moved to Israel. He was circumcised. He dedicated himself to the service of the Lord. Jonah had given all to be a prophet of God. He'd made sacrifices, tangible sacrifices. We have no mention of him having a wife, a family, children. Jonah, as it pertained to the Lord, was dedicated, but he was also devout. Jonah was diligent when it came to obeying the law of God. He was serious about observing the feast, respecting the Sabbath. I'm sure he even made the pilgrimage to the temple to make the necessary sacrifices for sin whenever it was required. If Jonah was around today, you would see Jonah as being quintessentially the perfect Christian. You would admire him. I mean, Jonah loved to study the Bible. He memorized scripture. He never missed a morning devo. Jonah could talk doctrine with anybody. He was equipped to evangelize the unbeliever, defend his faith, communicate God's truth in a relevant way, would fill in for the pastor on Sunday mornings. Jonah would have been a prayer warrior. Wouldn't have missed a prayer meeting. Would have been an avid church attender. Jonah was faithful in his service. And he was even more pious in his behavior. See, Jonah possessed a sterling reputation before the book of Jonah. Well-mannered, respected, charismatic, a natural-born leader. Jonah, there was a lot going for him. He'd never gotten into trouble. Had never compromised morally. Jonah was a good man, above reproach. He didn't drink, smoke, or chew, or hang out with those who do. All the moms in the church wanted their sons to grow up and be like Jonah. Outwardly, Jonah demonstrated all of the markings, all of the characteristics of being a good man. And yet, Jonah's resistance to one command to go and demonstrate grace to the wicked Ninevites, tore down that facade completely. As a matter of fact, his resistance to this one command, it revealed Jonah for who he was. You see, the inside of Jonah was much different than the outside. Jonah was judgmental, a bigot, unloving. He was hard. Not only does Jonah resist the word of the Lord, and proceed to defy a direct command of God. But in doing so, we see his moral prejudice, his ethnic bigotry rise to the surface. As we noted last Sunday, the way Jonah handles himself in this mighty tempest, 
further revealed an apathy towards the lost and a brazenness in the face of obvious divine involvement. It's simply a fact. And Jonah illustrates this reality for us. He demonstrates a reality concerning the devoted and the dedicated and the devout and the diligently religious person. This is what he illustrates. The command to demonstrate grace to the sinner will always reveal the true heart of the supposed saint. Though religiously pious, Jonah's reaction to the presence of grace revealed he was nothing more than a selfish punk. Jonah's resistance of grace really reveals for us two things about the man, but mainly his religion. Let me define very quickly religion for you. Religion can be defined as a set of things you do or refrain from doing in order to earn or obtain God's favor. In a sense, religion is man's attempt to reach up and reconnect with the God that his sin has separated him from. Places the onus on man. Sadly, though, the way Jonah responds to grace, the grace that God wanted to demonstrate to the Ninevites, it made it clear, doesn't it? That though he was religious, I mean a really religious man, you know what his religion had failed to do? It's clear. It had failed to affect his heart. Outwardly, he looked great, but inwardly, we see all kinds of nastiness flowing forth. But you know what else it reveals? It reveals that his religion actually did nothing. It failed to bring him closer to the God that he claimed to serve. Religion didn't affect his heart, and it didn't rectify his relationship with God. Ironically, it's in the way that Jonah treated others that he presents for us a very religious man who actually lacked a tangible relationship with God. I know it's provocative, but there are a lot of devoutly religious people, even what we would call Christians, who are and will be in hell. Because while doing things for Jesus, they've completely missed the importance of actually knowing Jesus. Don't take my word for it. In Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23, this is what Jesus said. And, and it's, it's strong. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, done wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. In Matthew 22, Jesus is challenged by the Pharisees and the scribes, the religious leaders of the day, with a difficult question. They were trying to catch Jesus into a trap. They asked him, Teacher, which is the greatest of all the commandments in the law? This is how Jesus answered. He said to them, quote, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. Hard to argue with that, right? They're wanting to catch Jesus into a trap, but his retort was brilliant. But then Jesus does something else. He doesn't stop there. 
They're just wanting to know what the greatest commandment is. But he follows it up by then challenging their failed religion. This is what he says. And the second, you want to know about the first. Let me tell you about the second. The second is like the first. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments, love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself, hang all the law and the prophets. What Jesus is saying here is it's incredible. Uh, And honestly, it was designed to directly rebuke the religious men like Jonah who were standing in his midst. Don't miss it. By tethering love for God to love for one's neighbor, Jesus is saying that a genuine love for God will be made evident by the love you show your fellow man. Don't miss that. Love for God will yield love for neighbor. You want to see someone's love for God? Look at their love for their neighbor. It's impossible, friend, to love God and hate your neighbor. It's a problem for Jonah, isn't it? Because he's filled with hate. Now, to his credit, Jonah understood what so many religious people fail to realize. The very essence of God's grace, it makes religious devotion and piety pointless. Like it's either God's grace and a relationship or it's man's religion and a furthered separation. I either open my hand to receive and enjoy his grace or I defiantly close my hand because I believe I should be able to earn it. This is why Jonah, when he's faced with an inconvenient truth that God desired to demonstrate grace, even to the wicked Ninevites, people Jonah absolutely hated, what does he do? He's not a hypocrite. Realizes grace and his religion don't mix. God's gone on the record about his grace, so what what does he do? He rejects his religion. He leaves the land of Israel and he immediately attempts to flee from the presence or the face of the Lord. Jonah would rather die apart from God than be God's instrument of grace to the Assyrians. Beyond this, it should also be pointed out that while Jonah was religiously zealous as it pertained to the things that he did for God, you know, things he could control that would feed his own sense of self-rightness, Jonah's unwillingness to obey this one command, to demonstrate grace to others, revealed a brutal but honest truth. The fact is, Jonah didn't actually know or love God. His attitude, his response, it makes this abundantly clear. Since grace is by definition something you cannot earn, which completely counters the the importance of religious adherence. Demonstrating grace to others can only manifest as a natural response to a grace you've already received and accepted in your own life. You see, this truth is what makes your reaction to God's grace Pivotal and in the end revealing. Resisting the demonstration of God's grace through your life to your neighbor is actually evidence that you're resisting the very grace of God demonstrating towards you. Grace received will manifest 
as grace shown. Let me repeat that. Grace received will always manifest. It will, it will spawn a reaction to a grace that's demonstrated. If I receive it, I demonstrate it. You can't have one without the other. If you're not demonstrating grace, it means you're not receiving grace. See what I'm saying? The Apostle John, he adds to this idea. 1 John chapter 4, he says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God. Catch that? Does not know him. For God is love. And this, the love of God, was manifested towards us, that God sent his only begotten son, Jesus, into the world, that we might live through him. And this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, what should be the response? He says it. We ought to love one another. Because grace transforms the recipient. Grace then naturally manifests from the recipient's life. Meaning if you're struggling to demonstrate grace, the problem resides not on the giving end, but where? It resides on the receiving end. You see, it's impossible to show grace to others if you're not receiving grace yourself. And keep in mind, how, how do we define it? How do we even describe it or talk about it? We call it showing grace to others, right? There's some meaning there. You see, it's hard to show something you don't have. But that's not in your hands. Which explains why legalistic Christianity, what does it produce? Many, many judgmental Christians. And we've encountered a few, haven't we? This is important. Jonah's core problem was not his unwillingness to demonstrate grace to the Ninevites. Don't miss this. This is important. Jonah's problem was not his unwillingness to demonstrate grace to the Ninevites. As a matter of fact, this was a symptom of an illness, not the illness. Instead, Jonah's core problem was what this unwillingness revealed about himself. Though Jonah was a religious man, he was resisting the reception of God's grace and his own life. That was made evident by his bigotry and his hatred. As such, Jonah, the goody-two-shoes church kid, this is the grand irony, he was just as lost as the wicked Assyrians. Jonah had forfeited a relationship with God on the altar of religion. His moral acumen was based on his performance, his goodness, his obedience to God's command, and not a relationship with the Lord. And so, in order to reveal to Jonah the depths of his own sin, what does God do? Verse 1 of chapter 1, God asked Jonah to do the one thing his religion wouldn't allow. Show grace to a sinner. There are two quick points of application before we dive into our text. First, how you treat others says everything about your relationship with God. I know that's simple, but it's a challenge, isn't it? Religion. I don't have time to get into why. 
But religion, it's a truth. It fosters prejudice, a judgmental spirit, moral comparisons, <laughs> hierarchies, strife and envy, jealousies. Isn't it true that religion fosters quite a bit of hate in our world? But you can't say any of those things about a relationship with Jesus. What should a relationship with Jesus create in us? <laughs> Love and compassion and forgiveness. See, Jesus yields a desire to restore a service, a selflessness. But there's a second application here. If you're struggling to show grace to someone or to love your neighbor, the remedy is not to try harder. Here's the remedy. Come back to the cross, the place where grace is received. It's hard to hate someone when you're bowed before the cross of Calvary. You see, the problem with your output is in actuality one of input. If you're struggling to show grace, don't try harder. Come back to where you've received it, knowing that it's when we receive something, it does something inside, and then it naturally manifests outward. Come back to the cross. Never forget, experiencing God's grace will yield the manifestation of that grace being shown to others. J. Allen Blair, he writes this, kind of concerning the larger aspects of this idea. He says, one of the greatest delusions that has entered the minds of Christians is to think they can live the victorious life. You have never lived the victorious life. The only one who has is Jesus Christ. The victorious life is not a life we experience, but rather one we live out. It is the outliving of the indwelling Christ. And he indwells the believer. And he lives out his life from within. Our part is to let go and to let God do the work. Our obligation is not to try to get victory, but to die to self and yield to Christ's control and experience victory. In John 13, Jesus builds on all of this. He answered the question, the greatest commandment, throws in the second. Then he does something interesting. He says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Jesus is clear, right? That the love we have for God and therefore one another stems from where? within me, or you, or us? No, it comes from a love I've received from Jesus, and there is no greater love. The scripture says there's no greater love than, than a man would lay down his life for another. And the horrors that Jesus experienced on the cross is his proof of his love. And that changes everything. As we've noted, Jonah's resistance of grace was taking him down and down and down. 
Jonah was on the run, but God was in hot pursuit. Though God had had sought to use the tempest to get Jonah's attention, had even tried to use the events of the ship being designed to, to drive Jonah to his knees in repentance, sadly he remained defiant. Jonah would rather die than go to Nineveh. And then, most amazingly, Jonah suggests that the storm would cease if the crew threw him overboard. If it were me, he would have gone swimming immediately. But instead, these Gentiles refuse the suggestion and row even harder. How amazing that the man resisting grace was being shown once again the power of grace. The men he should have been reaching out to were reaching out to him, but he still remained hard. And because the storm worsened, the crew finally relented. Over Jonah went, and the storm ceased. In verse 17, chapter 1, we read that now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God, from the fish's belly. I don't want to get sidetracked from the core purpose of the narrative. As mentioned in our our intro study, the tale of Jonah is not one about a fish. Fish is only mentioned four times. The story is about God and this prodigal prophet. It's not about a fish, but, but truth. This is one of the more radical, mysterious, head-scratching details in the Bible, so it does at least for a minute or two demand some consideration. First, what is the Scriptures actually saying happened? Like, what's being described here? While there have been some who have tried to soften the supernatural elements of the story by claiming that the book of Jonah should be viewed as either being mythological or allegorical, the truth is that there's no room for that. The book of Jonah can only be read as literal, a literal history. In no way does the context of the story lend to any other conclusion. As a matter of fact, if you you need evidence of the historicity of Jonah and this fish, look no further than what Jesus said in Matthew 12. He says that some some of the scribes and Pharisees answered saying, Jesus, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered, and this is what he said, an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, but no sign will be given except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as, definitive, Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will even rise up in judgment of this generation and condemn it, because they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and indeed a greater than Jonah is here. Jesus here not only confirms that Jonah was a real person, that an actual revival took place in the city of Nineveh, but Jonah claims... Jesus claims of Jonah that he, quote, spent three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish. As a matter of fact, Jesus even points to this literal historical event as being a foreshadowing of the greatest miracle that's ever happened on planet Earth. Jesus' own death, burial, and then resurrection after he spent three days in the heart of the Earth. You can't read it any other way. You can have problems with it, but you have problems with the text. The second consideration 
is that the text establishes this event. Now follow me here. The text establishes this event as being abnormally natural and not necessarily supernatural. <laughs> Let me explain what I mean by abnormally natural. Notice, look at the text. We're told Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. A fish, mind you, that we're told the Lord prepared to swallow Jonah. Now, now carefully consider what's actually being described. One, contrary to lore and the way that this story is often presented in Sunday school class, this was not a whale. That's a whale of a lie. The text doesn't say it's a whale. Not at all. Instead, the text tells us that this was a unique fish. In the Hebrew, it's the word dag or sea creature. It could have been a whale, but it's not tied specifically to being a whale, which is good because it's very unlikely that a human being could actually survive three days and three nights in the belly of even the largest whale we know of. But that's not what the text is claiming. If you're like, I just don't believe somebody could, could survive in a whale that long. Nor do I. That's cool. That's not what the text is saying. Two, the fish, look, look at it. We're told was specifically, quote, prepared. That's a past tense. Prepared by God to what? Prepared for an intention to, quote, swallow Jonah keep him alive for three days, and then vomit him onto the shore. In the Hebrew, this word prepared, it doesn't mean that God randomly picked out a fish, the biggest fish he could find, and told that fish, I got a job for you. I need you to swallow Jonah. Like, that's not what's being said. That's not what prepared means. The word in the Hebrew, it, it means this, to carefully design. See, what's being said is that God carefully and intentionally designed, sometime in the past, a fish for the specific purpose of swallowing Jonah, preserving him, and vomiting him up. Now, we have no idea. Text doesn't tell us. No clue when God prepared such a sea creature. The Jewish rabbis, they taught that on the fifth day of creation, when God said, let the waters abound with an abundance of living creatures, that God created this fish, only one, with the specific intention that Jonah would one day be swallowed up, preserved alive for three days and three nights. Most amazingly, this means that since the fifth day of creation, there's been a unique fish going around the globe for thousands of years, just waiting for Jonah to hit the water just chilling right behind that boat. I'm ready. I was created for this. Aside from this, from a larger standpoint, if, if you believe the first couple words of the Bible, in the beginning, God created, and then, and then you believe that that God who created is interested in the things of this world, like if, if you've already gotten to that point, like let's be real. Like what's being described, it's not that big of a deal. Like the truth is if you want to get hung up on a fish swallowing Jonah, keeping him alive, blah, 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 blah. Your bigger issue is Jesus' death and resurrection. As a matter of fact, follow me. 
Jonah being swallowed by a fish, it's not even the greatest miracle in the story. The greatest miracle in the story, I think there's two. One, that God would tolerate Jonah. I wouldn't have. You? No. The fact that God's long-suffering towards Jonah, that's a miracle. And two, that the entire city of Nineveh would repent of their sin from an eight-word sermon from a reluctant pastor. That the greatest revival of human, that to me is the most supernatural thing that happens in the book of Jonah. The salvation of the Ninevites. Finally, there's one more theory. I'm just going to throw it out there. There are those that theorize that Jonah actually died. That Jonah died, that the fish preserved his corpse, and then upon his resurrection, Jonah starts kicking and moving, the fish vomits him up. Though interesting, and I will admit that it, it adds a deeper meaning to what Jesus said of Jonah. Maybe being a more literal type. The problem is that after three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, what are we told? That Jonah prayed to God. As a matter of fact, in the language, it means that Jonah has been praying the whole time. Now, the reason that that is problematic is that it would imply that Jonah's soul cried out to God after his death, that God heard his prayer and then granted him a second chance to obey. We have no examples of that happening in Scripture, and this would provide some credence to a Catholic heresy known as purgatory. The truth, the text never says he dies. It doesn't. In actuality, the idea is he's alive for three days praying. Now, with all that being said, let's read the entire chapter, which records now Jonah's prayer in the belly of the fish. Verse 2, And Jonah said, I cried out to the Lord because of my affliction. And he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your billows and your waves passed over me. Then I said, I have been cast out of your sight, yet I will look again towards your holy temple. The waters surrounded me, even to my soul. The deep closed around me. Weeds wrapped around my head. I went down to the moorings of the mountains. The earth with its bars closed behind me forever. Yet you have brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer went up to you, into your holy temple. Those who regard worthless idols forsake their own mercy. But I will sacrifice to you. With a voice of thanksgiving, I will pay what I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. So, the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Now, as we seek to unpack the essence of this prayer, I need you to know up front, and I don't think you'll be surprised, that I see this prayer completely different than almost every commentator I read. Like, like, though undoubtedly, Jonah repents of his sin. And there are even specifically three aspects to his repentance that will demand our consideration. This is where I differ. In the end, Jonah makes a terrible mistake in his approach. 
a mistake that's so terrible that while he repents, his repentance only brings him back to the point he initially left from, not where God wanted him to be, and as a result, Jonah will be forced to learn the entire lesson all over again. We'll get to it. In regards to the positive elements of Jonah's prayer, there is no doubt three things contributed to Jonah's repentance. And if you're on the run, or thinking of going on the run, you should think these things through. Consider them. First, Jonah conceded that life was miserable apart from God. He had reached that conclusion. Two, Jonah confesses that his misery was on account of his own idolatry. And finally, Jonah remembers that salvation is of the Lord. Let's unpack them first. Jonah conceded that life, he's in the belly of the fish, life was miserable apart from God. Like, I don't know how long it took. <laughs> it could not have taken very long before Jonah realizes that he's not dead. As a matter of fact, he realizes that something far worse than death has overtaken him. Imagine what three days and three nights in the belly of this fish were like for Jonah. And I don't think we have exactly a comparison because this is a unique fish. But I don't think God made it a hotel. He doesn't have cable in a weight room. Like this is, this, this is terrible. As a matter of fact, he describes his experience as an affliction or literally a grave distress. What must it have been like? to have had, as he describes, the flood, floods surround him as he slides into the fish's belly with billows and waves constantly passing over him, Jonah finds himself in a living cement mixer. In the belly, he rises up, is turned over and pushed back down, only to rise up get turned over and be pushed back down constantly three days and three nights. He continues by describing his struggle with the weeds wrapped around his head as he descends down into the mooring of the mountains. I have no idea what that phrase means. It just doesn't sound cool. No doubt that what Jonah did or how he fought his descent He's so overwhelmed that he says that the earth with its bars were closing behind him forever. This is how he felt. He ultimately defines his experience as if he were in, quote, the pit or the belly of Sheol. It's not an accident, those two phrases. Literally what he's saying is that his affliction, it was so terrible that it's actually what he imagined hell being like. It was a living hell. And yet, aside from the practical suffering that Jonah was experiencing physically, this trauma, it's clear from his prayer that his greater torment was actually spiritual. Do you kind of pick that up as you read through it? Like his life, it's filled with a hopelessness. A hopelessness Jonah directly attributes to a separation that he's experiencing with God, a separation that was caused by his rebellion. Like he uses phrases, right? You cast me into the deep. I've been cast out of your sight. 
All these things are relaying his, his sense of alienation from a God he had spent his life serving. This was so tormenting that Jonah sums up his, his spiritual torment by just saying that his soul fainted within him. When Jonah boarded that boat in Joppa, seeking to flee from the presence of the Lord, I am confident that in no way Jonah imagined that this is how his life was about to play out. Maybe he expected the storm, was prepared to go in and die and drown, being swallowed by a fish and kept... In no imagination is this how he's seeing his life in rebellion playing itself out. But honestly, friend, what is hell but life apart from God? Like it didn't take long for Jonah to realize that he had been stupid. Like his rebellion has led himself to a place he'd never imagined. And it, it is wildest estimations ever arriving at. And yet in the belly of this fish, Jonah is attaining the life that he sought. I hope you know, and I don't want to hammer a point that I think is kind of obvious, but the original lie, the original lie of Satan in the garden to Eve, that lie has never changed. It's been used over and over and over. It's been used in your life. You see, Satan always seeks to get men and women to buy into an idea that it's possible to create a better life apart from a relationship with God. It was the original lie. Satan comes up, eat of this fruit. Oh, God said, no. Oh, he's holding out. When you eat of it, you'll be like God. God's saying, obey him, and that's, and that's a good life. I'm saying, rebel and make a better one. It's the same lie told over and over and over that God's holding out. Being a Christian's lame. You, get, you, get, you should be your own God. This is something that Jonah believed. And as with Adam and Eve, they, they ate of the fruit. Jonah boarded a boat, and quickly both groups of people realized that this was a terrible decision. It was Jonah's pursuit that yielded a wrestling. Are you wrestling? Do you lack a contentment? An uneasiness? Something deep in your soul? It may be that you're, you're buying into the lie. Is there an alienation? Do you feel hopeless? The second thing that we see here is that Jonah... He confesses that his misery was on account of his own idolatry. Like in the midst of this affliction, Jonah comes to see, as Creed so gloriously sang, that he was in a prison of his own making. My own prison. Like to his credit, Jonah doesn't blame God. He doesn't blame God for his misery. Instead, Jonah actually owns up to the reality that the pit existed because of the consequences of his own decision. Rebellion had led him to this destination. 
Along these lines, verse 8. Look back at verse 8. It's, it's a fascinating verse. Jonah says, quote, Those who regard worthless idols forsake their own mercy. Now, on the surface, it, it might appear that as if Jonah was referring back to the failed attempts of the pagan sailors, right? As they're on the ship crying out to their false gods, their idols, and how vain and worthless they happen to be. But the reality is, while on the surface it might be easy to reach the conclusion, nothing in the language or the sentence structure suggests that's the case. <laughs> the truth, verse 8, is probably one of the more difficult verses in the entire Bible to translate into English. Case in point, the, the ESV translates this verse as, quote, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. The NIV has kind of a different twist. Reading, those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. I even ran across one scholar who translates verse 8 as this. Those who pay regard to the vain idols forget the grace that could be theirs. In the Hebrew, this word that our New King James Version translates as mercy. And note, some of your translations... I know it's with mine, actually capitalize mercy, signifying that there's a divine element behind the word. You see, mercy, the word doesn't speak of mercy. That's not the intention of the word. Rather, the word spoke of God's covenantial love, something that was intrinsic to just his very person. We've already read about it, that God is love. It's not mercy. It's something bigger, something deeper. Now, the reason that this is fascinating is that in context, Jonah is not speaking of pagan idolaters. He's speaking of a love that God had for his people, the Hebrews, which is significant. Because Jonah's acknowledging that his rebellion against God, it wasn't just a vain idolatry, setting himself on the throne as God. But Jonah affirms that the act of idolatry, the act itself, had separated his own person from the steadfast love or grace that God had for him. Romans 8, verse 39, we're told that there is nothing that can separate you from the love of God, but there is an exception to that. There's one exception. The only thing that could separate you from the love of God is you. It's your idolatry. It's you taking the throne. See, Jonah knew that God loved him. But he also knew that the course that he had set for himself would render the covenantial love that God had for him of no effect. Never forget, and this is important, while the grace of God is amazing in its own right, the grace of God is powerless if you don't receive it. Finally, Jonah remembers that salvation is of the Lord. Yes, Jonah had created a mess, the mess that he was in. And it's true that his idolatry had alienated him from the lasting effects of God's love. But it was also true, equally true, that God was more than willing to save Jonah if he'd ask. He says, he uses interesting phrases, right? 
I cried out to the Lord because of my affliction, and he answered me. I cried, and you heard my voice. You have brought me up, my life up from the pit. O Lord, my God, salvation is of the Lord. How truly amazing it is that while Jonah had made a colossal mess of things, God was not only willing to hear his cries, to answer his prayers, but to save him from his affliction. J. Allen Blair writes, Praise God. No one can go so low that Christ cannot save. No matter how far down one may go in sin, God's grace can raise him up. We should all, saint and sinner alike, find that to be incredibly encouraging. It's been said that verse 9 may be one of the most important verses in the entire Bible. It's simple, but brilliant. You see, the truth is that all of humanity falls into one of three categories. You have the irreligious who don't believe they need to be saved. They don't need salvation at all. You have the religious who see salvation as something that they can earn. So you have those that don't believe they need to be saved, those that believe they can save themselves. But there's a third group. There are those who rightly believe that salvation, it's something I need, it's something I can't earn, but it only comes of the Lord by grace. There's little doubt that Jonah's concession, that life was miserable apart from God, his confession that his misery was on account of his idolatry and his acknowledgement that salvation is of the Lord prompted God to speak to the fish and it vomited him onto dry land. And yet, while all of these things were significant, it's my belief and a sad truth that Jonah's repentance falls short of God's intended desire for his purpose. Look back at the text for a second. Notice something. In response to absolutely everything that's happened, Jonah declares, quote, But I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay what I have vowed, before then adding that salvation is of the Lord. Do, do you catch that? You see what's happening? I, I know it's a subtle detail, but don't miss it. Though Jonah rightly understands only the Lord saves, that's only something God can do, he appeals for God's salvation to be extended how? As a response to the promises that he's just made. Look at it. He says, I will sacrifice. I will pay what I have vowed so that the Lord will save. Like Jonah is repenting. But this is what's dangerous. His repentance is leading him back to his religion and not God's grace. It's leading him back to God's favor being demonstrated how? On his merit. These are the things I will do so you'll save. That's religion. It's not based on God's goodness. You see, it's my conviction that as Jonah's being regurgitated out of the, the belly of the fish, that his, 
that he believed his final destination was going to be Israel. That's where I think he, he believes he's going to end back. Back to Israel. Oh man, running from the Lord? That was terrible. Like, I don't think he believes he's going to go to Nineveh. Like, how surprised? We'll get to it next Sunday. But Jonah 3 verse 1, how surprised that the moment his head hit the sand, what does he hear? Now the word of the Lord came unto Jonah a second time. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach unto it the message that I tell you. The same commission as the beginning. Because Jonah has yet to fully learn the lesson that God is seeking to teach him. Coming back to religion, which was good, but not back to grace, which is where he was supposed to be. This is the great thing. It's amazing. The last two chapters of this story, it returns from its intermission with literally the identical plot line of the first two chapters. That's what we're going to see now. There's not a fish. It, it's a different story, but it's the same plot. And you know what? I don't think it's an accident that the Ninevites will end up being saved. Not because of the sacrifices or the vows or the promises that they made to God, but simply on account that they were willing to receive what Jonah couldn't, God's grace and the salvation that grace affords. It's sad. It's tragic, really. I don't mean to make light, but in the second act, though we'll find Jonah obeying God's commands, he does go. He wants to end up in a fish. I'm sure he wouldn't go back on, on, on water. But what you could be swallowed by on land, that, that doesn't sound good either. So he's going to obey the letter of the law. But he does in no way reflect God's heart, which is what God desired. He goes to Nineveh. He begrudgingly delivers God's message. And then this is what Jonah does, not to spoil things. He walks into the city. Eight days, Nineveh will be destroyed. And he turns, he goes up on a hill, hoping beyond all hope that he's going to get to witness fire and brimstone rain down in judgment. When instead, the greatest revival in all of human history takes place. And it burns him up. <laughs> yes. Jonah is released from a prison of his own rebellion. That's the truth. But his continued resistance of God's grace, as we'll see in the next few chapters, eventually shackle him to a whole new type of misery. And so, Father, we want to let that word...